I'm Nick Harcourt, and this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. Thank God there weren't cell phones then, because if I ever saw a video of me dancing in college, I would really be just mortified. Barry Ritholtz is the CIO of Ritholtz Wealth Management and the host of beloved Bloomberg podcast, Masters in Business. He also used to dance in his bedroom as a kid to Brandy by Looking Glass, saw Black Sabbath at Madison Square Garden, and will always feel certain jazz songs deep in his heart and soul. Listen as he talks about the music that made him the person he is today. Hey, it's Nick Harcourt, and welcome to our first Sounds of Success podcast for Spark Network and our first guest, Barry Ritholtz of Ritholtz Wealth Management, who you can follow out there on his website at R-I-T-H-O-L-T-Z.com. You can find him on Bloomberg News and on his Masters in Business podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So great to see you again. How are Same you? here. Um, I, I want to complain, but I really know I should shut the hell up. I really got nothing to bitch about. Perspective is everything, isn't it? The yes. last time we spoke was back in September of um, last year, 2020. What's the general feeling for you right now? Do you see anything changing, an impact on the economy, financial markets? Where do you think we're headed in the immediate future? So this question comes up all the time, partly about the apparent disconnect between the economy and the stock market. Um you know, I, I tend to be a little bit of an optimist, even though at times I've been very, very negative about events in the world. Uh, retail sales are way above pre-pandemic levels. Uh, saving rates have gone up. Credit card delinquencies are at record lows. And, you know, there's an old joke about recessions. A recession is when your neighbor gets laid off. A depression is when you get laid off. And that really turns out to be very true. If you didn't get fired, this is a pretty mild recession. If you did get fired, it's horrible. And we very much have been watching that for the economy, for people who are out of work, for people who are underemployed. Generally speaking, there's going to be a lot more assistance available. How are you? How have you been? Where are you right now? What have you been doing? So I'm in my home office, which is upstairs at home on the North Shore of Long Island. Um, you know, I get up very early each morning and I start my process of going through all of my favorite websites to see what looks interesting. Uh, and that includes both mainstream finance media like Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, The Economist, all, you know, the whole run of that stuff, as well as some more esoteric, interesting media sources that cover everything from technology to arts to behavioral finance. I find you, you don't want to be too narrow to an inch wide and a mile deep. It's helpful to have a wear a lot of different hats and, and have a broad understanding of what's going on. Every day I, I make a list of things to do. I started out of boredom. I started color coding it. <laughs> just, just, and I'm like, I'm the last guy in the world to do this sort of stuff. I went through college and grad school, literally never taking a note. You know, if you're doing dictation, you don't remember a word of it, but if you're focused and paying attention, hopefully you're figuring out some concepts and then later you want to jot some notes down. But uh, this sort of stuff is just trying to stay structured in a world with no structure, you're home 24-7. Let's get to some fun here. Enough about the business, enough about the economy. We're going to talk music. 
Sure. I know it's a great love for you. Why don't we start off with you telling us about your first musical memory? All right. So a lot of this is going to be really embarrassing in hindsight, but it's what starts us off. When I was, I want to say six or seven years old, like single digit age, my parents gave me a tape recorder and I found myself using it to record music off the radio. And it's hilarious how things come full circle. I think the first song I recorded was Brandy. Do you remember that? You're yeah. a fine girl. And the funny thing is that started showing up on playlists this summer. I started hearing it again. Like, what? Where is that coming from? Um, and, and that is probably the earliest memory I have of recorded music. Now, my mother is a very talented musician. She went to high school in music and art, plays piano, as well as drums and saxophone. Um, but she can hear a song by ear and bang it out on the piano. And so I, I heard music growing up, but this was the first pre-recorded music I, um, I had an experience with. It's so funny. I had a, a, a reel-to-reel tape deck given to me, not at six, but maybe at 11 or something like that. And I did the same thing. I recorded things off the radio. It's so right. weird when you think about it. But that's where we heard music. That's right. Different so, world. So what about buying music? Do you remember the first album you bought with your own money? I do. And again, really embarrassing. Wait till you hear the rest of the questions. Red Octopus, not even Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. And you know, I always had sort of side jobs as a kid, mowing lawns and delivering newspapers. There was a store called EJ Corvettes. And the best part about Corvettes, aside from the name, was that their music department, you could go buy records for like $3.99 and $4.99. Like five bucks for an album was fantastic, e even as a kid. So Jefferson Starship, Red Octopus. That, that's, you know, that's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> what about your first concert? I think the first one was Chicago at, um, so as when you're in like eighth or ninth grade, Nassau Coliseum was a 20 minute drive, not even from the house. So my parents would drop me off at a concert and pick me up. It wasn't until like, I don't know, 10th grade, I was allowed to take the train into the city to go see shows at Madison Square Garden. So there were a bunch of that five-year period, like let's call it 75 to 79. Um, I saw a lot of great shows uh, at those venues. I can't count how many times I saw Jethro Tull or Boston or, you know, go down the list. I missed I always kick myself about missing little place called my father's place in Roslyn, 20 minutes from where I lived back then. And in my senior year, I miss seeing the police play a, a show there. It's like a 200 person venue. And then I saw Black Sabbath at the garden. And this is one of those shows that just stays with you. This little up and coming unknown band opened for them named Van Halen mm -hmm. and blew the roof off the dome. Wow. It was, it was great. Black Sabbath from my, uh, my hometown, Birmingham over, yeah. over in England. There was no uh, uh, animals getting their heads bitten off at that concert. I hope. I think Ozzy was pre biting heads off period. The seventies, you know, paranoid and Iron Man and that whole run of albums was, he was still relatively 
you know, I don't want to say sober, but, you know, rock star sober, which is yeah, not not brain damaged yet. Right. So when you're buying these these albums as a teenager and you look back on the music that, that formed you, um, what's an album that you will go back to or an artist that you will go back to when you want to dance? That's an interesting question. It depends on the type of dancing. You, you can't go wrong with the Great American Songbook and, and going back to Frank Sinatra and that for that sort of, of dancing. Um, you know, I think back to college and the B-52s and the Talking Heads and um, Oingo Boingo and go down the, the all the hair bands. Um, and that's a whole different sort of style of dancing. Thank God there weren't cell phones then. Because if oh I ever God. saw a video of me dancing in college, I would really be just mortified. You know, the dancing is one thing, but just in general, I'm so glad there were no camera phones around when, when we were younger because, oh my gosh. Brutal. What about an artist or again, an album, perhaps when you feel a little melancholic, you know, when you want to perhaps just sort of like sink into yourself, maybe even have a little cry. Is there something that you come back to? Sure. Um, it's funny because it depends if I'm in the mood for something old and melancholy or new and melancholy. So old and melancholy, I just love the Ella and Louie duets. And there's something about it that it's it's just this wistful, beautiful, foregone era that, that's kind of fascinating. Um, uh, the early albums of, of things like Everything But The Girl um, or, or Michael Penn, um, or, or Freddie Johnson, there's a bittersweet element to all of those. You're one of the few people I can have this part of this conversation with. I, I was in love with this album that in the UK was called Two Wheels Good and was a huge smash for Prefab Sprout there. In the US, it was, um, no, it was called Steve McQueen in the UK. Right. Here it was called Two Wheels Good. Right. And uh, it, it's, I, I was... A, regular listener to that during a, a, a romantic breakup and they re-released it and, and re-released a number of um, acoustic versions, which are even more beautiful than the originals because it just strips it of everything except the core melody. And um, that's one of those sort of bittersweet melancholy and the lyrics are just spectacular. Patty McElhone's lyrics are, are fantastic. That, that's one of the albums that, in an argument with a buddy about how much great music is unknown, he challenged me. He goes, give me five albums that begin with any random letter that you think are great and, and people don't know. And I think we picked the letter P. Prefab Sprout was one. The Push Stars were another. Um, I'm, I'm sure I could, if I think about it, I'll, I'll pull up the rest of the list. Yeah. Oh, uh, Philosopher Kings, that first album is just this jazzy pop masterpiece. It, it's just funny how much great music is out there that people just never get to hear. Spotify and streaming services get a lot of flack for the right reasons that they don't really compensate musicians and, and songwriters. But having said that, they're such a resource if you want to dig in and discover music and find playlists and, you know, artists like Prefab Sprout, for example, who I am also a huge fan of. Um, All the World Loves Lovers, um, Hey Manhattan. Before I even came to America, that song, Hey Manhattan, 
I was right. like, I want to, I, I got to go there. And, and it was exactly how I thought it would be from, from the video, you know, and there's an album called Jordan, the comeback. Sure. It's just such a fabulous, fabulous album. And little known fact here, the push stars from upstate New York, when I was right. living in, in Woodstock and working at radio Woodstock up there, they were floating around town and I helped them get a publishing deal back in the day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So small world. So you were mentioning, um, uh, f- for those who, who perhaps don't know, when you say um, Ella and Louis, you're talking about Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, right? Really? Do I have to? Do I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't know who's who's listening, you know? Right. Yeah, I guess. So it's so they, they did a couple. They did Porgy and Basson, but they did a couple of um, duets together. And it, it's just spectacular. Quick digression about how I found that universe. In grad school, I had a friend who turned me on to this Linda Ronstadt songbook, where Linda Ronstadt is singing the Great American Songbook. And I was blown away by it. I'm like, oh my God, I've never heard songs like this before. And I was really impressed with it until, you know, you hear a song and it sends you down a a rabbit hole looking for another song. And then I heard Ella Fitzgerald um, do uh, something from Rodgers and Hart. And I realized so much, well, thank you, Linda Ronstadt, for introducing me to this genre. Yeah. But I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> and I- that led to Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and, and work your way down Julie London. That's a rabbit hole of just incredible talent and songwriting and and eventually Nelson Riddle and Frank Sinatra and you work your way uh, across that and it helps you appreciate things like jazz and rock because you develop an understanding of what really fine songwriting and really fine singing is about. You mentioned Sinatra that was music my parents played so it, it didn't mean anything to me when I was growing up it was only once I, you know, got out of the house and had some of my own life that I was able to come back to that. Right. Do you have any artists like that at all that was played around when you were a kid and you're like, oh, that's old folks music. And then perhaps later on you you came back to it. So when I was a kid, I'm born in the, in the 60s. So I kind of missed all of that. You're a young fellow. But all... <laughs> Not relative to everybody else these days, but my whole crew, we all had older brothers and sisters. Now, I'm the oldest in my family, but many of us had older brothers and sisters. And that group of people, when we were in our early teens in the 70s, in the mid 70s, they introduced us to uh, the Beatles and Creedence and Beach Boys and a whole run of um, British invasion from the Stones to the Who to, you know, go down the list that we probably would have found eventually. But it was nice kind of getting that introductory guided tour. I never thought of any of those as kind of old fogey stuff. They were always like, oh, my God, what is this? This is amazing. Um, and, and growing up in a household where there was a lot of music with a mother who was a musician, I never really had that attitude. You know, the closest thing to an old fogey was Elvis Presley, who I never really, uh, I was too, either too young or too old. I was too young to appreciate him. And it was too new to be retro for me. So that was the closest thing. And every now and then I'll circle back to uh, a song of his and I'm like, oh, you know, that's that's really good. The the other person I kind of knew of and heard 
and came back around to with a finer appreciation later in life was Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash wrote an amazing number of, of songs. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm not a giant country and Western um, fan, but then you start to hear some of these songs stripped of the style and redone by other people. That, that's the beauty of cover songs is that they can reveal um, a certain inherent beauty in music that you may have missed either because you didn't like the person's voice or the style, or, but, but that's the fun of cover songs. And there's something to be said as well for um, uh, Johnny Cash covering a whole bunch of contemporary yes. songs, which he did towards the end of his life. I was not a fan of country and Western music growing up. Obviously, it's changed since then. And we have pop country and we have more old school country. But many years ago, I had the, the good fortune to go to Long Island and build a stage for a concert that was at Montauk. They used to do these concerts to, to save the, the, uh, the lighthouse. And mm -hmm. one year, Billy Joel would host it. And the next year, um, Paul Simon would host it. And I went down and got hired to build the stage. And the, Paul Simon was headlining, the Highwaymen were next. So you get to see Johnny Cash, uh, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson. That's a murderer's row right there. Oh, my God. But it's the old outlaw country music. And once right. I saw that, my third eye got a little bit of a squeegee. As, as far as country music is concerned, because, you know, the depth of the, the, the songwriting right. um, is uh, Waylon Jennings was the other guy. He right. Was, that's was, right. Was hey, you could say the same thing about Dolly Parton. Her, her songwriting is just people don't realize how much stuff she's written for other people that have been massive, massive hits. Yeah. So if you're uh, if you're just somehow joining us uh, on this conversation, I'm Nick Harcourt, and it is the Sounds of Success podcast with Spark Network. Our guest is Barry Ritholtz. And Barry, as we move through these uh, these questions, um, I was asking you about what made you want to dance, what might make you uh, feel a little melancholic. Do you have a favorite artist that never quite made it or an artist that you thought was going to become huge and didn't? Somebody that's just special to you and you can't quite understand why they're not bigger stars? So there, there are dozens and, and dozens of, of artists like that. Where do you even begin to go with this? The, the first Magic Numbers album. I love that record. That, that's a spectacular record. Yeah. It sold like 40,000 copies. It sold some absurdly small. Now they ended up finding success in soundtracks and elsewhere. Um, uh, there, there are a handful of songs that I end up playing over and over again. And um, we mentioned the, the push stars. Um, I don't know how drunk is better than dead is not like a massive, massive hit. And then the eels are, are, are another band. The song Beautiful day. I don't know how that doesn't open up movie soundtracks constantly. It's just one of these things that oh, it, it just grabs you and there's no way. And you could go down, you could go down the list of, um, is it, is it Roman Candle? I'm trying to remember the name of the band. Roman sure. Candle says pop. Right. They're like their debut album is this like lovely pop. I think they're also from Athens, Georgia, where REM is from. And, and, you know, when you actually research it, what makes a hit, um, Derek Thompson wrote, wrote a book called How Hits Happen. And there's a shocking amount of random fortune that determines what becomes a hit and what, what doesn't. It's not merely 
write a great album, write a great song and get it out there. There's a whole bunch of other moving parts that have to come together to, to make, make it happen. So I just have so many things I'm, I'm entranced with and surprised more people don't appreciate them that you look at it and you say, all right, it, it just, for whatever reason, the fates didn't smile on that song or that band or that album. And it, it was destined to be somewhat below the radar. You know, I've been very lucky to have a career uh, where I get to play music first, you know, and help break artists um, throughout the years. And uh, for, for every one that broke, there's another hundred that I thought would and, right. and didn't. And as you said, it's a, it's a variety of circumstances. You know, uh, if the record label promotion guy is not into it, you could be that could be it right right there. Or if you're not able to tour, you mentioned Magic Numbers, obviously a British band. I love those guys, um, but they didn't really get to spend that much time here. And there's so many things you have to do, as you mentioned, so many things have to line up for something to actually break. Um, right. Look at the first Magic Numbers album and look at the first Vampire Weekend album, which in many ways are similar. Uh, I think the Vampire Weekend was um, a little more catchy, a little more pop. And maybe that's the difference why they caught fire. Right. And Magic Numbers had a, a, a little run and, and it never achieved that same critical mass. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have a, a guilty pleasure, a musical guilty pleasure? <sighs> I have lots of them. Um, I, I mean, I'm 59. So Taylor Swift is a musical guilty pleasure okay. uh, for me. I, I, I find her videos just really, really entertaining the other guilty pleasure, it's not as guilty, but it's a pleasure, is um, the video aspects of how music is made and how songs are constructed. So on Netflix, Song Exploder is just spectacular. I don't know if you've watched any of those. Yes. Explaining how various tunes have come together. I don't know if I would call that a guilty pleasure. It just feels like such relaxing, easy do nothing, it's away from work. So there's a little bit of guilt with that. And then, then the other version of that on YouTube is something called Polyphonic that really breaks down different artists, different aspects, different genres. And that's another like, all right, I'm just gonna take nine minutes out of my day and watch this YouTube video about how John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, instead of following the bass player, followed uh, Jimmy Page, the guitarist, and that's one of the things that made him so unique as a drummer. It, it, it's just fascinating, uh, guilty pleasure. What is it about a show like that that interests you? Are you, are you interested in, in, like you said, for example, John Bonham not doing what you would expect and finding his, you know, his beat off something else? Um, or when somebody explains perhaps how a song came together. What is it that's, that's interesting about those things for you that we wouldn't know unless we- Sure. Into it? So, so I have no music training. I have no musical education whatsoever. I like what I like. I don't like what I don't like. And I feel very much that I am ignorant as to not so much what I should like, but why I like what I like, other than I like the way that sounds. And some of these things give you a little bit of music theory and a little bit of explanation. Um, I was just talking about a book with a friend. Um, if you've seen the show Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda and his 
I think co-scripter, um, trying to remember if it was a person who worked on the score or the lyrics, but they put together a book called Hamilton Annotated and essentially explain the derivation of every single lyric. You might not have referenced that this was a Beastie Boys cut up and this came from Wu-Tang Clan and it's just like crazy. And as you read it, it's like, oh my God, I didn't notice that, it's amazing. I love those sort of things that fill in the blanks of what you might not have noticed on your own. And so yeah. those sort of shows really not having any sort of professional musical knowledge, filling that in sometimes helps you appreciate music a little more. Are, are you like I am when I go into an art gallery? I, I know what I like and that's pretty much it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So my wife teaches fashion illustration and design. She's been teaching fine art for years and years. So I've been dragged around museums all over the world. You know, we always do the guided tour and she snorts and laughs at all these things. You know, it's, it's, it's so pretentious. And so art should speak for itself. Now, if you want to fill in some background and some details, hey, here's why the artist went this way and how his career developed and this after spending all this time working in colors Rothko decided to move to black and white for this chapel he did towards the end of his career like that that's a little interesting and gives you some context right but, but I think a song should stand up on its own and a piece of art should stand up on its own and you should say I like that or eh, I could I could live without that and I don't mind learning about those things. I'm thinking about Rothko because I just saw the documentary uh, on about his life um, during lockdown, which could be any time in the past year. It's all a blur. <laughs> but, but um, you know, learning about how how an artist evolves and how their craft develops is kind of interesting and can give another dimension to your appreciation of the art. But ultimately, the art has to stand on its own. If it needs a sales pitch. It ain't that good. We're working our way towards the last couple of questions here. Do you have a favorite song? Now, I know everybody has favorites. And as you can imagine, because I do this for a living, I get asked this many, many times. And, and for a long time, I always found it hard to give an answer because there's so much stuff that I like. But eventually I honed in on something that a song that I know that whenever I hear that song, I feel good. Do you, do you have something like that? I have I have lots and lots of songs like that, but it would be impossible to uh, impossible to pick. It's just okay. there's there's just you know, and, and I've mentioned a number of them. Um, there's an endless array of things. It's funny because as you go through your life, there are different songs that you know, and and the if you use iTunes at all, you'll you'll get a play count. And you'll say, wow, I really played the hell out of Elvis Costello this year. Sure. It, it's funny to see something like that pop up. Um, but I can remember different periods of my life so when yeah. different songs, different albums just dominated. Like I, I just offered, I could, relative to other milestones in your life is what frames the, the time and the place. Like I can remember in 86, 87, just playing the hell out of the first four REM albums, one on each side of a cassette. And anytime you'd get in the car and go anywhere for a weekend trip or something. Yep. Um, and that was around the same era as I want to say prefab sprout um, and Freddie Johnson and uh, Michael Penn. 
yep. the No Myth album. I think I had Freddie Johnson and Michael Penn on flip sides of a cassette. Right. This was early in the CD era, so you didn't have a giant collection of, of, of discs to play whenever you wanted. So we would all copy tapes for each other. Yeah, you tape stuff. somebody's CD onto a cassette. Right. Um, do you have a recent discovery that you'd like to share with us for our Sounds of Success playlist? Because we're putting together a Spotify playlist with sure. uh, uh, songs that are picked by uh, subjects of, of, of this podcast. So and you're going to, we mentioned covers earlier. There is a cover of Bill Withers' Lean On Me. Let's see if I can find, uh, find that. that. That's a song I've just been playing the, the hell out of. And um, the, the other thing is a sort of jazz trio. Picture him happy. Ben Sidron, picture him happy. Um, it's an album and it's just a Sisyphus goes to work. It's an odd little song. And, and so th there's lots of little things like this. Um, there's lots of little things that, that I find intriguing, but it's the, the problem with having everything digital these days back versus when we would have to physically pull the album out and look at, look at it is that you don't have the same resonance. It's all part of a broader 30,000 foot view of music as opposed to that really more intimate experience. And I think that's something that you lose in the movement over to digital that I'm buying this album. I really like it. I'm going to take 45 minutes out of my life to sit down and listen to it. I mean, I could give you a couple of Lizzo songs, but really that not exactly unknown. Um, I'm just trying to look at what else I've, I've been, how, how do you spell Sidron? Cause I don't know that. S I D R A N. Okay. So if anybody wants to look that up. So, so I found him because he played on an album with, it's always interesting. This is why you have to read the liner notes. He played on an album with Van Morrison called tell me something I don't know, which is the best of Mose Allison. So you take this, really amusing jazz pianist with with arch lyrics and you know a very sardonic worldview and you have van morrison um cover it and and you know these are just really amazing songs amazing albums and so that's one of the things i feel this you lose with the streaming services although to be fair i do end up finding things through Pandora. Pandora is pretty good for music discovery. You'll be listening. You've got your radio head station on or something, and then something else will pop up. And it's, that, right. It's That's exactly right. God, I'm, I have not bought a lot of albums in the past, you know, six months. I'm just scrolling back to look at uh, and that's part of the problem with how we're perceiving how we're consuming music these days. Yeah, I mean, the music is so much more of a commodity than it than it ever used to be. It's and, background, and, and that's unfortunate. They, they do say that uh, there is more music being made and listened to now than, than ever before. But how do you how do you cut through? And, you know, discovery, obviously, is a big part of uh, what I've done with my career. And it's been great talking to you about this. You've, you've made it through my sort of vague Proust questionnaire about music. And I've got one more to ask you as we as, as we finish up. Um, Hit me. How are you feeling right now? I feel pretty good. Yeah. I mean, again, I really want to whine and complain. I think that's the nature of, you know, my people. We like to bitch. Um, we like to fetch. But, uh, 
you know, you, you look at the state of the world, which is not fantastic. Um, although there's lots of things to be optimistic about, hey, the light is here at the end of the tunnel from with the vaccine uh, for the pandemic. And I think the mayhem of the past four years is hopefully we're going to put that in the rearview mirror. But hopefully we could get back to the business of squeezing every last bit of juice out of every day you have. Right. That's the thing that I'm so frustrated about is that I feel like on the one hand, 400,000 Americans have died of this. That's an insane number. That's something like one out of every 800 Americans. It's an absolutely insane, insane number. On the other hand, I, I, I do feel like I've lost a year in some, some ways, even though I haven't, but I lost the ability to go out to a show, to listen to a band, to go to a museum, to, to do the things that bring a certain richness to life. And, and so um, I'm looking forward to when I could once again go out to a show and listen to some live music. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be around the fall, personally, but uh, whenever- I'm hoping sooner than later, but yeah, that, that's, not a, that's a pretty conservative- estimate i don't i don't think you lose money on that bet yeah <laughs> good to know and whenever uh, whenever i head out i know dancing is uh, is on the uh, on the menu listen barry it's great to catch up with you again same here nick this is fascinating you know it's so funny i do so much media i speak to so much stuff and i never get to talk about this which is just endlessly you know fascinating to me it's fun to talk to you about music and uh, you know the music that you grew up with the music that formed you and the music that you love thanks for joining us my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.